from the late 1990s to the mid-2000s. Central Mexico was plagued by a serial killer who targeted elderly women. The murderer, known only by the nickname El Matavietas, killed dozens by way of strangulation during the reign of terror. Could this monster really have just been a middle-aged mother who moonlighted as a wrestler? Welcome, welcome, welcome to yet another episode of the KMH Podcast. I am your springtime fresh host, Brad, and today we are going to take our first trip south of the border, and it's going to be a crazy one, La Matvietes. Now, let me preface this by stating that I've read a lot of reports, and there's a lot of conflicting information out there. I can't even really tell you when the first murder we're going to discuss occurred. But in all fairness, the authorities can't even account for how many victims there are. That being said, let's jump into this bad mamma jamma. Juana Barraza Semperio was born in Hidalgo, Mexico in 1957 to Trinidad Barraza, a police officer, and Usta Sampario, an alcoholic prostitute, a match made in heaven. Only three months after Juana's birth, Huesta left Trinidad to begin an adulterous relationship with Refugio Sampario, a married man, but not just a married man. It was Huesta's stepfather. So we are off to a rocking, maladjusted start today. This is the point, too, where I need to apologize for my horrible, terrible, no bueno Spanish pronunciation skills, despite the fact that I'm married to a woman of Hispanic descent. It is a personal shame and embarrassment, and I apologize for it. Juana developed a good relationship with Refugio, but barely spoke to her mother. This mother-daughter relationship never existed. And at age 12, Justa sold slash pimped her daughter to a man named Jose Luego, allegedly for the steep price of three beers. Lugo impregnated Juana twice at ages 13 and 16, but both pregnancies ended in miscarriages. Joesta eventually died from cirrhosis, and Juana finally began living her own life free and clear of her mother after moving to Mexico City. But unfortunately, life continues to be a rough go for Juana. She endured several failed marriages and gave birth to four children. However, her firstborn died as part of a gang shooting. On top of all this, she was in a constant struggle for money. During the 80s and 90s, she worked a variety of odd jobs to try to make ends meet. She also began doing a little something for herself, pursuing a passion project, if you will. She decided to try to become a professional wrestler. God, isn't the story off to a great start? 
Ioana donned the sacred wrestling mask and began touring throughout central Mexico as La Dama del Silencio, or in English, the Lady of Silence. This name was in reference to her own shy, introverted personality. In 1995, Ioana, after having her fourth child, was extremely short of cash. Wrestling didn't pay the bills. I think she got three to 500 pesos a night. She never had a steady job. Being so short of cash, she felt like her only way to provide for her family was to turn to a life of crime. Now, Ioana begins starting off small, as most criminals do. She shoplifts from some stores, a little light pickpocketing. But then she gets more comfortable, more confident in her abilities. And she steps up her efforts and begins to burglarize homes. Now, originally she worked in conjunction with a friend, Araceli Tapia. Now, Tapia was married to a member of the Mexican police force and... Unfortunately, there are many members of that agency that are what we would call corrupt. Tapia decided to take advantage of her husband's corruptness and turn the tables on Juana. She extorted 12,000 pesos, which would be about $650 in today's money, in order to keep her husband from arresting Juana. So... Ioana has grown up with an alcoholic mother who pimped her out for booze. She was pregnant twice before she turned 18, suffered through two miscarriages, then a string of bad marriages, had her oldest child killed in a gang shooting, was grasping to support her newborn son, and her close and arguably best friend just turned on her. And she enjoys dressing up in costumes to fight other people at night. Sit here and tell me this does not sound like the start of a Batman villain story. It does, right? And that's kind of what we have happen. Reports vary, but beginning in the late 90s, maybe the early 2000s, rumors start spreading of the El Mat Vietes, a serial killer who preys on elderly women. The first known victim, first confirmed victim, was Maria de la Gonzalez, who was murdered in November of 2002. Now, looking back, we know that this happened because Gonzalez apparently made some disrespectful remarks to Juana, who responded, as you would expect, with total blind fury, beating Gonzalez nearly to death before strangling her to finish the job. Juana next killed again in February of 2003, some think because there was this legend growing around the El Matvietes, and it was intoxicating to Ioana. After the second murder, Ioana realized that she was good at this, and she liked this, and so she, her work increased dramatically. So while she was getting busy taking down old folks, the police... We're trying to sketch out what was going on here. By November of 2003, which would have been about a year after Ioana started her little activities, the police had gathered enough evidence that they felt comfortable that they 
to put together a rough sketch of what they believe was a budding serial killer. This sketch was a tall man with rough features who was muscular and posing as a social worker to gain the victim's trust. However, the police were hesitant to make this information public because of politics. See, you had a bunch of political feuding going around surrounding these murders where you had the party in power saying, there's no serial killer. It's the opposition making this up. Everything's fine and dandy. Whereas the opposition was stating, there's a mass murderer, possibly multiple ones. No person is safe. Let's panic and elect new people. The cops, not wanting to get in the middle of it, refused to say that there was actually a serial killer, but they released these sketches to as a to the public to help them find a quote unquote person of interest. Interestingly, they released two sketches, one of a man and one of a woman. There was a lot of confusion over whether the serial killer was a man or a woman because the reports they had gathered suggested that the killer would show up in a nurse's outfit, but had very masculine features. Again, looked very muscular, was tall, uh, looked strong, and was had short hair, kind of rough looking. So there were some other complications with the police as well. Coincidentally, three of the first victims all owned a print of Jean-Baptiste Grill's boy in red waistcoat, which caused the police to think that that painting was somehow linked with the killer's M.O. Don't you like how I just threw out this painting like y'all are supposed to know what it is? I looked it up. It's, it's not very exciting. It's just this kid that kind of looks like a boy, but is a little gender fluid, wearing a red waistcoat and a black overcoat. It's not particularly fetching in my opinion, but I'm not an art person. Police also got stumbled when they received information that there were at least two killers working together, not just one. So it's a bad start for the cops. I guess a good start for Ioana. Now, despite these complications, the police were pretty close in their sketch, their profile. Ioana was working as a, for lack of a better term, an undercover nurse to pull off these hit jobs. Somehow she had obtained a list of senior citizens who were eligible for a newly implemented health care plan for all citizens over the age of 70. Ioana would use this list to find women who likely lived alone so they would be easier to prey on. She would show up at their doors as a government nurse with falsified government documents and use this to suggest to the victims that she could get them free medical care. If they looked like they were from the poorer part of town, it would be just basic health care. If they were from the wealthier part of town, she would offer things like discounts on drugs and massages, those sorts of things. Once she gained these elderly women's trust and got inside their house, she would then 
use the opportunity to strangle her victims with whatever tool she could find that was most convenient. Stockings were used. Electrical cords were used. She even used the stethoscope she wore at times. Now, as you've guessed, one important fact the police were incorrect about was the gender of the serial killer. They were completely convinced this was a man. Again, as we discussed, based on the descriptions, they felt it had to be a man from the size, the muscles, and all that. Now, police considered the possibility that because this thought of man was posing in women's clothing, that he was either homosexual or transgender. And they aggressively invaded those communities and made multiple arrests to try to find the person behind this. I read that approximately 50 people from these communities were arrested, but all had to be released because the fingerprint evidence they had never matched. And really, it took a while for police to even entertain the idea that a woman was outsmarting them. It wasn't until an eyewitness who saw the killer fleeing the scene stated affirmatively that the killer was a woman that police began looking at female suspects. There were interviews with police and prosecutors who claimed, once they were comfortable using the term serial killer, that this man must be smarter than Ted Bundy and they were up against this incredible, intelligent, cunning foe. But once a woman became a suspect, their story changed and they discussed her in terms of being a psychopath and crazy and unpredictable. So you could just see that law enforcement was dripping with this idea of machismo. It's kind of silly to read back on that they would be so sexist when investigating a murder. One report I read suggested that Juana always wore red when she went out for a murder. A fun little theatrical thing she did. Another part of her Bat-villain persona, I suppose. Not to give away any spoilers, but when Juana's eventually arrested, she actually was wearing a red top. Now sometime in the mid-2005 time period, Juana began dating a man named Jose Torres. He was a taxi driver and a small-time criminal who was really known as El Frijol, or The Bean. All right, detour right here. There is one undeniable truth in this world. The Mexican cartels and gangs are the world's best at coming up with nicknames for their members. Go look it up. I'm serious. You'll find the oyster, little bear, fatty, and I swear to God this is true, the bunny commander. So, El Frijol started assisting Juana with her crimes. So, all of a sudden, the frequency, the range, and the times of day that the killings were occurring changed, which threw another wrench into the cops' efforts. Though I couldn't confirm this, it appears that El Frijol was served more as a getaway driver and didn't actively participate in any of the killings. He just passively participated. 
Now, police efforts really intensify after Juana made the mistake of killing a woman in September 2005 by the name of Carmen Gonzalez. Why was that a mistake? Because Mrs. Gonzalez was the mother of a very prominent Mexican criminologist. So, since one of their own had been hit, police increased patrols, pamphlets with her sketch, with uh, Juana's sketch started to be handed out, and the media started sharing information that elderly females were warned not to answer the knock at the door of a stranger. These efforts were, sort of, uh, there were no murders committed by Juana during the month of October, which is right after this occurred. She went dark, and police began thinking that, yes, we stopped the serial killer. He or she has met some sort of untimely demise, committed suicide, or just fled town. They started playing We Are the Champions via a mariachi band, which you've never heard is just magical. And all sorts of good times were had. In January of 2006, Joanna started her business up again. But she must have been rusty, because she made a huge error. While she was killing Ana Maria de los Reyes, a local landlady uh, who ran a little apartment-slash-boarding house, there was someone who spotted her. Ioana fled, the witness gave chase, and was able to shout down a passing patrol officer who stopped Ioana before she could get away. Now, things work a little differently in Mexico when it comes to arrests and all that stuff. There has to be a lot of publicity around a case that has its own publicity. So... Ioana was not taken to the police station and interviewed immediately. Instead, she was taken to her home, where many trophies and mementos of her crimes were found. There were also dozens of newspaper clippings about the murders, which is somewhat unusual because Ioana was totally illiterate. Police confirmed that she was preying on elderly women by using a nurse's uniform, which was found in the house, false identification papers, again, found in the house, and various medical paraphernalia, which found in the house. There were altars in her house dedicated to two saints criminals in Mexico often worship, and the police, in an act of hubris, forced her to pose for the pictures in between the two altars while holding the police sketch they came up with. This move became highly, highly criticized in the public and press because it was done as part of a story of the police saying that, oh, we knew who she was. We were just slowly binding a trap around her, like a Chinese finger trap. In reality, Ioana happened to be at the local police station a week before as part of a scheduled interview for television about the world of women's wrestling. So, not many people bought the cop story when they had her squarely in their potential custody, let her get away, and she kills again. 
So ultimately, Ioana was charged with 30 murders and scores of robberies. In March of 2008, she was found guilty of 16 of the murders and 12 of the robberies, largely in part because these were the only scenes that had fingerprints that prosecutors could link her to. Ioana was sentenced to 759 years in prison, which is a long time. I think this is the total length of her sentences if you add them together consecutively. However, under Mexican law, all sentences automatically run concurrently. So she will be eligible for parole in 2058. And my understanding, again, with the Mexican system is you get parole kind of automatically unless you've been a total storm of a nightmare in prison. So when she's paroled, Joanna will be exactly 100 years old. So we have the who, what, where, when, and how. But why was Joanna doing all this? Why was she focusing on killing elderly women? Not one of her victims was younger than 59, but virtually all of her victims were over the age of 70. We're talking 70s, 80s, and 90s even. So what's the deal with older women? It is believed Ioana targeted elderly single females as they reminded her of her own mother, and she thought that by helping to kill off that generation, she was making the world a better place. Her attorneys and others argued that she was clearly traumatized severely by the treatment she received from her mother. In contrast, she was considered to be an excellent mother in her own right. Neighbors praised her, said she went to great lengths to take care of her children. Her children, of course, said she was a wonderful mother. Naturally, she soon adopted this narrative whenever she would speak to the press. Now, though Ioana was charged with 30 murders and found guilty on 16 of them, there are many experts who believe she committed somewhere between 40 to 50 murders during her spree. All were killed by strangulation, which is a very personal and intense way to end someone's life. It takes a lot of work, to choke somebody. It takes a lot of strength and a lot of determination. That suggests to me that she was acting out in a way to get back at her mother because this that's obviously such a personal thing she went through because of her mother. And I don't think the word personal does what she went through justice. But to turn around and kill people this way you have to be kind of a monster. Um, that's brutal. That is a brutal way to kill people. There were also several bodies who showed signs of other abuse, be it she beat them down before she choked them. Some reports claim there were sexual abuse performed on the bodies. Uh, it's just a nasty, nasty thing. Now, Ioana admits to killing, but only to killing one person. 
and she claimed she had nothing to do with the other crimes she was charged with. Ioana also maintains that she did not act alone, and that there are several of this is a quote, there are several of us involved in extortion and killing people, end quote. Yet police insist that Ioana was the lone killer. Now, these statements cut against her motive. If she is doing this work, this bloody work, personally, where she's looking into the victim's eyes as they die, my experience suggests she would want to take credit for it, or at least not shy away from it. She may not want to publicly admit that she committed all these crimes, but I don't think she would distance herself so actively. Now, we have to remember that Ioana is rather intelligent. She was able to outwit police for all these years. And so this may be an effort, or this may have been an effort, to try to reduce her potential culpability before the court. Now, Ioana's story doesn't end there. She disappeared from public view once she began serving her sentence in 2008, and she remained hidden for many years. However, she popped back up in the news in 2015. Why? Because Ioana found love. She married a 74-year-old male inmate by the name of Miguel Angel, a fellow murderer. They were one of 48 couples who married in prison during a special ceremony. But this seemingly perfect and romantic match was not meant to be. Ioana had never seen her, her husbands prior to the ceremony. Upon laying eyes on each other, Ioana said, the love just vanished. During the next year, the two lovebirds spent a total of 40 minutes together. Eventually, Ioana filed for divorce. This is kind of depressing, right? I mean, if these two can't make it in this crazy world, what hope do the rest of us have? So what does Ioana do in prison since she's not a married woman? Well, she passes her time by making tacos. I know that sounds so stereotypical and racist, but it is 100% true. She sells tacos from Monday through Wednesday each and every week. She has told reporters that she likes her life in prison, and she sleeps very well at night. Ioana has become a bit of a folk hero after all this. She has been portrayed in a popular television program, and many songs and ballads have been made about Ioana's murderous activities. You can find a link to one of these songs in my show notes if you are as curious as I was. Again, I hate throwing out all these spoilers, but the song I found is not going to strike you as a work of astounding genius. But nobody's written a song about me, so who am I to judge? So I'm walking away from this case with the impression that Ioana Barraza is a bit of a psychopath. Yes, she suffered through terrible childhood trauma and no doubt hated her mother. But none of that's the fault of her victims, these elderly women. 
who were practically defenseless against this former wrestler. These were people's mothers and grandmothers, and Ioana carefully picked her prey. She earned her their trust through deception, dressing up as a nurse, promising health care, but instead she brutally struck them down and ended their lives. She was, and frankly still is, in my opinion, a complete monster. I've dealt with lots of criminals during my days in the courtroom who pointed to some sort of childhood trauma as justification for their actions. Yes, being sexually abused as a child makes it more likely you're going to abuse a child as you grow up. I think we're all familiar with those findings. But that in no way excuses the action, does it? Just because you went through hell, you want to make other people suffer the same lifelong lasting scars as you? We're all responsible for the choices we make, and there's no justifications for actions like this. And I know what you're thinking, Brad, Brad, that is a hot take. And it is. What can I say? But I won't stand here and lie to y'all. I have a duty to tell the truth. Does that make me a hero? I would say no, but there are dozens that would probably say yes. Yes, Brad, you are a hero for such a hot take. All right, well, let, let's just jump into the palate cleanser uh, to wash off some of this muck. Again, selected by my seven-year-old. Why did the picture go to jail? Because it was framed. Beautiful. Beautiful. Okay, well, with that, we're going to put a bow on our 10th episode. I have read that over half of the podcasts that start never make it past their 10th episode. So we've reached that tipping point. I attribute this fact to either aliens or government hit squads. So y'all please pray for me. Hopefully I will be back next Tuesday with some sort of grisly tale to entertain you with. As always, please do the whole rating, reviewing, subscribing thing. I know it gets tiresome to say that, but I have to say that. Why? I don't know. I mean, to fight the corporate man? To show them that not all podcasts need solid sound engineering or, or even a host who can speak clearly to succeed? To impress that crush you have? You pick a reason. I'm not here to run your life, okay? Just, just go do it. Okay. All right. I need to calm down. With that, let's get back to real life. Sayonara, muchachos. Thank you for listening to Kellen Missing Hidden. Make sure to rate, subscribe, and share. Questions? Email us at info at kmhpodcast.com.